Well, about a year ago, uh, I was reading through a wonderful gospel-centered book called <clears throat> The Pastor's Justification, and, and I came across some pretty shocking statistics about those in modern pastoral ministry. Uh, the author of that book, Jared Wilson, cited several studies which, which pointed to the, the challenges faced by those serving as pastors in local churches. And he shared that 70%, 70% of pastors say that they constantly fight depression. 70%. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged. 90% of pastors report to working between 55 and 75 hours per week. So it's not just, you know, a few hours on Sunday morning. 50%, 50% feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 70% say that they don't have anyone that they consider a close friend. 50% say that they would leave ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. Also, 50% of those who enter into full-time vocational ministry will not last five years. 50% will make it five years. And in the end, nine out of ten pastors will not make it to retirement. 90% don't make it to the finish line. Those are some shocking statistics. And one of the things that they point to is that pastoral ministry can, can be a real challenge. And it can be. can be. But it can also be a great blessing. And it's a great blessing that I, I've been able to enjoy for the last 21 years. Now, I know I don't look near this old. But this summer, actually in June, will mark 21 years for me in pastoral ministry. And my wife, Amy, has been by my side for the last 20 years of it. Actually, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary on May 23rd. And because of a gift from several of you, I get to take her away and spoil her at a retreat in Mexico. So we're all very excited and very thankful for all of that. And that, being able to do things like take my wife away because of the generosity of all of you, uh, that's just one of the many blessings that we've been able to enjoy in these last several years. Recently... Uh, Through God's amazing grace, and in spite of my own personal freak out, God blessed us with a new home, and and many of you were involved in making that happen. Many of you prayed for us, you supported us, some of you gave financially to help us get into that house, and and several of you showed up and helped us move, and only Bill broke something, so good for everybody else. (laughs) I got to tell you, our entire family, myself, Amy, Riley, Anna, we have all just felt overwhelmed by the love of our, our church family. And, and being part of this church, being able to plant redemption and serve here as pastor for the last six plus years, uh, it has been one of the most rewarding, encouraging, fulfilling experiences in my, my 21 years of ministry. And, and I think that's saying something because the last 21 years for me in ministry has been filled with a lot of blessings. I've been able to partner with Christians. I was thinking about this last, last week. I've been able to partner with Christians all around the world. I've been blessed to travel to Mexico and to Nicaragua and minister there. I've had the joy of teaching pastors in Madagascar and leading young people to Christ in Poland. And I've met Christians from every continent on the globe. Well, except for Antarctica. I didn't meet any from there. But all the inhabited continents. I've met Christians from every continent on the globe and, and been encouraged by, by this diverse group of brothers and sisters, by their faith, and being able to stand with them and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, I, and I've also had the blessing of being able to do that with so many of you. I've been able to walk with some of you 
for the majority of these last 21 years in ministry. Uh, our own Rachel Barnsey, I, I met her when, back when she was Rachel Allen, and she was younger than my daughter Anna is now. Uh, Chris Murray was part of our youth group, as was April back in the day. Not, not too long ago, right, April? Just, just recently. Um, I was there when the Ermans got married under that old tree at Valley Bible, and the Kanslers were part of a small group that, that met in our house before my daughter Riley was even born. And so over those last 21 years, I've had a front row seat as I've gotten to preach Jesus and watch him change people's lives. And that's probably been the greatest blessing of my time so far in ministry, being able to preach Christ and watch him change people's life. That is such a blessing. Amen? That is such a blessing. I hope you know how excited I was last Sunday to see this place filled up with people and being able to preach the gospel to them this last Sunday. I mean, that that text was so great as Paul walked us through the gospel there in Galatians and being able to preach that to all these people. there's, There's no blessing greater than that. But here's the thing. When you are engaged in doing that work, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality is that you find yourself in a spiritual battle. You find yourself in a spiritual battle. We live in a fallen world. And, and the gospel and gospel ministry always find pushback in this fallen world. As has, well, has, as has been well said, the Christian calling is not to life in a pleasure cruise, but to life on the battlefield. Life on the battlefield. And I've seen and I've been through a lot in the last 21 years on the battlefield. I've counseled couples, walked with them through the wreckage of adultery. Try to give them hope. Help them understand forgiveness. Help them understand the gospel. I've walked with families who've lost children to overdose. Suicide. Tragic accidents. I've pleaded with men and women and young people to surrender to Christ. When we see them walk away their own destruction, their ruin. I've witnessed ministries and men in ministry who I love self-destruct. I've had friends turn on me, never wanted to talk to me again because as a pastor I had to confront them on an issue. I've woken up in the middle of the night more times than I could count because I was concerned about the well-being, the spiritual well-being of someone in our church or, or how a family was doing in a church or the salvation of a young person that I saw go in the wrong direction. And I've laid there in the middle of the night and wrestled with the Lord, pleading for his grace and his intervention. Now, I'm not sharing any of that with you this morning as an attempt to get sympathy or in any way, shape, or form to complain. But I'm sharing that with you this morning because I want to be real transparent. I want to take some time this morning to, to share with you about my own personal exhaustion. Uh, this last fall... I hit the wall, so to speak, in ministry. Uh, I, I felt more worn out than I have, have ever felt. Um, those of you who know me, you know I'm a pretty upbeat person, pretty positive, but there were mornings where I didn't even want to get out of bed. Studying, which I love, uh, became something that I dreaded. It was taking me two, three, sometimes four times as long to prepare a message for Sunday morning. And the entire time, it was a battle. 
It was a battle. The entire time I was praying against my flesh, I was asking God to grant me the strength to just, just work for another 30 minutes, just to write another few words, just to put a few more thoughts together. And I, I, I kept slogging through. But what really got my attention, what really pointed out that something was wrong, uh, was a few repeated moments, I guess is the best way I could describe it, moments of panic that happened this last fall. <clears throat> there were a couple of, of difficult situations that I was in, hard situations, but, but not any more difficult than any other situations I've been in in the last 21 years. But my response in those situations was different than it had ever been. Instead of being in those situations and being able to see myself as there to help and to serve, everything in me, and it was, it was so strong, it was palpable, it was so strong, everything in me just wanted to run away. It was like every part of me was saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Please, don't make me do this anymore. Now, by, by God's grace, <laughs> I didn't run away, and God did some amazing things in those situations. But that such thoughts were there and that they were so strong, it, it really frightened me. I know men who have shipwrecked their faith, their family, their ministry, just bailed on everything. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. I love our Lord. I love my family. I love our church. And I've loved being a pastor. But something was wrong. And I needed help. Let me share something with you that, that I hope that you know, uh, but I'm going to share it with you just to make sure that you do. When we feel that way, and what I mean is completely overwhelmed, when we feel that way, one of the worst things that we can do is just try to ignore it. It's one of the worst things that we can do. Just, just try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and trudge on alone and in silence. That is absolute folly. It is arrogant foolishness. And so by God's grace, I started talking to people and sharing what I was feeling. First, I talked to my wife, Amy, who I found out herself was battling some exhaustion, a lot of exhaustion. I talked with my friend and ministry partner, David Lemke, and we had a very open and honest conversation. I called up Jeff Coulter, the pastor over there at Edgewood Bible Church, and a friend of mine, talked with him. I reached out to Pastor Paul Majak over there at Rainier Hills and talked with him and Eric Nyborg out at Sports Outreach Northwest. But one of the most important conversations that I had, second only to my wife, was the conversation that I started with my, my fellow elders here at Redemption. And I, I praise God that I could just be open and vulnerable with those men. And I could share with them my struggles. I could share with them my fears. I could share with them my concerns. And they listened to all of it. And then they responded as shepherds. As shepherds. They cared and they care for me like they care for all of you. And so we talked. Uh, we talked about the demands of 21 years of ministry. We talked about concern for me and my family. We talked about the blessings of this church and how God is working, the things he's doing in and through all of you. 
And that the conclusion that we all came to through those conversations and through a lot of prayer was that it was a healthy time for me to step back briefly and take a sabbatical. And, and that's something I've never done in 21 years of ministry. I've taken vacations from time to time, but, but I've never taken a sabbatical. I've never taken a step back to refresh, to refocus, and just to replenish my own spiritual health. And, and that's really what a sabbatical is all about. As its name implies, a sabbatical is about rest, but it's about a very specific type of rest. It's about taking a step back in order to take a better step forward, in order to take a better step forward. And and several professions, as you study it, they have embraced this idea. You see this practice often in academia. A professor will step away from his or her regular teaching load in order to focus on an area of study or write a book or receive some further training. And the idea is that they step back from the regular demands of their profession of being a professor, in order to pursue something that's going to make them a better professor. And the business world has taken notice of this practice. Now now several companies employ this for those in various leadership positions. A a CEO will take a sabbatical. He or she will step back from their regular daily activities in order to refresh, in order to regroup. And the expectation is that when they return to their position, after that brief time away, they will return with, with vigor and with a deeper perspective. And in talking with other men in ministry and in reading a lot about the subject, this is an approach that many churches are now adopting uh, in, in order to, to try to stem the tide of ministerial disaster, as you saw in those, those stats I quoted to you. A lot of churches are actually scheduling regular sabbaticals for those in ministries. And so after so many years, uh, men are actually required to take a sabbatical. Sometimes it's stepping back for three to four weeks. Sometimes it's longer, man. Sometimes it's six months. And taking that kind of break, taking a sabbatical, that is what we as elders prescribe for my my ministerial exhaustion. So beginning in the end of May and running through the middle of August for roughly 13 weeks, I'm going to step back from my daily responsibilities here at Redemption. And working with the elders, we've come up with a plan for those 13 weeks. And and some of that plan is going to be rest and relaxation. As I said, Amy and I are going to go away and celebrate our 20 anniversary. We also have some family who has a place over in Idaho on the river, so we're going to retreat away for over there for a couple of weeks. But there are other things that we're going to be doing and working on, aspects of spiritual health and and vitality during those 13 weeks. So there's things that I'm going to be studying, uh, things I'm going to be pursuing during that time, myself and, and our family. And here's the thing. If you're interested in the plan, you can talk to me after, after service, talk to one of our elders, and we'll, we'll lay it all off for you. We have it all charted out and <laughs> laid out with all the, the schedule for that. Uh, but maybe the thing that, that you're more curious about is what's going to be happening here on Sunday mornings throughout the rest of the week at Redemption. Uh, who's going to be carrying the load that I'm leaving behind for those 13 weeks? Well, again, this is where I want to praise our elders. Um, Dave Tyndall, George Walk, David Lemke, our elder candidate, they will be taking on a lot of those day-to-day shepherding responsibilities. Uh, Kerry Greenman, our new elder emeritus, will still be available for, for counsel and input. And, and David, along with my administrative assistant, Christy Johnson, will be handling all the administrative needs. And I also have a couple of pastor friends in the area who are going to be standing by, should, should David or the other elders uh, need to reach out to somebody and get a hand with things. i got to tell you, it's actually been a blessing already to feel so ministered to by all these different people stepping up. 
And on Sunday mornings, uh, during that time, we're going to launch a new summer series here at Redemption. Uh, we're, we're going to call it the Summer of Psalms. And in the end of May, David is going to launch that new study. And when I get back from my sabbatical, I'll, I'll wrap it up. But throughout that study, we're going to have several godly men, pastor friends of mine, who will be preaching. We have different visiting speakers on Sunday mornings who are going to be taking one of their favorite psalms and then walking you, you through it. And I have to tell you, I'm really excited about that for all of you. Um, the guys who are going to be coming and speaking, they are wonderful, godly men, and I'm, I'm eager for you to get to know them better. But what a blessing to be able to get to know them through the Psalter, <laughs> through the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are so precious, amen? They're so precious to so many of us. And what a joy it's going to be to hear testimony after testimony after testimony of how God has used the Psalms in the life of his servants. So I'm really excited for you to be able to walk through that with these godly men this summer. And I'm excited to be able to come at the end of that and wrap that series up. So that's what's going to be happening this summer. That's the plan for for my sabbatical as I, I step back in order to take a better, a stronger step forward. But in our time remaining this morning, I want to take you to a text, a passage that I think gives us some helpful biblical framework for how we should approach things like this. How, how should we approach exhaustion and rest as Christian people? How should we approach such things as followers of Jesus? And let's be real honest, brothers and sisters. This is a real area of struggle for many of us. Amen? This area of understanding rest is a struggle for a lot of us. Many of us struggle with rest. And we struggle for different reasons. Some people struggle with what I'll call the sluggard rest. The sluggard rest. And what I mean by that is that some people become, well, addicted to rest. <laughs> they become lazy. They become lazy. They are like the proverbial sluggard. They are wasting opportunities, wasting their gifts, wasting their life. Or, or they've made a, made a God out of rest. They are those who are always working for the weekend, those, those living to play, those spending their life in ease and comfort. They struggle with rest because it's become an idol in their life. Theirs is a sluggard rest. But at the other end of the spectrum... There are those who, who I would say they know a, only know a guilt-laden rest. That's their struggle. They, they feel incredibly guilty when they rest. And, and these folks, these are the folks who always need to be going. They always need to be doing. Uh, like, like their constant activity defines them and justifies them. And what I mean by that is it feels like their constant activity shows the world and their own hearts that they have value. They are a person of worth. And so those people, for them, the struggle to rest, they struggle to rest because, because they don't know how to rest in a way that doesn't strip away their identity. You know, I'm the person who's always doing, but if I rest, what does that say about me and my value? So they only know a, a guilt-laden rest. You might get them to rest, but they're always so guilty about it. And then there are others of us who struggle just to pursue a profitable rest. And what I mean by that is we, we work until we're exhausted, 
and then we crash. And we crash in front of the TV when we come home from work, or we, we turn into a human vegetable over the weekend. Rest for us becomes just about completely shutting down. But that's not very profitable for our minds, nor for our spirits. It's often not the refreshing kind of rest that we need. So many of us struggle with rest. Either it becomes a God, becomes a source of guilt, or it's a waste of time. But rest is something that we need to redeem. And we need to redeem it because it's a gift from God. Rest is a gift from God. Throughout the Bible, God calls his people to rest. He gives them Sabbaths. In the Old Testament, there were weekly, there were yearly, there were generational periods of rest. Times when God called his people to take a step back, to refresh, to reflect, and to just enjoy his gifts. And you know this, but I'll just remind you of this. This is an idea, this idea of Sabbath is rooted in creation itself. It's rooted in creation itself. On the seventh day, what did God do? God rested. He stepped back, he reflected, and he enjoyed, he delighted in what he had made. And then he gave us this calling to a Sabbath rest as a gift for humanity. And it's a gift. We are finite beings. But sometimes we forget that, right? (laughs) We are finite, limited beings, but sometimes we forget that. Or at least we, we carry on like we've forgotten that. We forget that we are not unlimited in resources. We are not unlimited in energy. We are not unlimited in ability. We forget that we were created. We are limited. We are not all powerful. So we need rest. Actually, every night when you lay your head on your pillow, that's God's reminder to you that you are not him. You are not him. You are not infinite in power and ability. And you need rest. We need rest. We need rest. That's what I want to show you in our time remaining this morning. I want to show you that our Lord Jesus understood this. Our Lord Jesus understood this. He, He called his followers to embrace the gift of rest. He modeled it for them. And most importantly, he pointed them to the true source of rest for our weary soul. I want you to see this this morning as we turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, an old friend of ours, <laughs> the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. So take your Bibles, turn them to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at this morning at verses 30 to 46, but instead of doing a detailed exposition of this text like I did a few years ago when we preached through it, I just want to point out three helpful things from this text, three helpful things, three things that, that I think will help teach us about how to redeem this gift of rest. And the first thing that I want to point out is that rest is a gift from Jesus. Rest is a gift from Jesus. Rest is a gift that Jesus grants and desires for his followers. Rest is a gift that Jesus grants and desires for his followers. And we see this here, look at the text in verses 30 and 30 to verses 30 to 32. Look at the text. Mark chapter 6 starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they, the apostles, had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now let me just give you a little background to this scene. These apostles had just finished a very demanding season of ministry. Back in verse 7 of chapter 6, 
Jesus sent the, the 12 out on this mission of gospel proclamation. And they, they were to go out in pairs. They were to go out in his authority, in Jesus' authority. And they were to go out in absolute dependence upon God. And don't take two pairs of sandals and we go out in absolute dependence upon God. And now here in verse 30, we see them return. And Mark tells us that, that they returned and they told Jesus all that they had done. And they had done some pretty amazing things. They had cast out demons. They had traveled through numerous villages. They had proclaimed repeatedly the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And all these wonderful things. I come back and they report to Jesus what happened. But what's Jesus' response to this report from the 12? Did he say, well, that's good, but guys, I got to tell you, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have so much more work to do. Does he say that? Does he say, well, well, I wish you understood, disciples. We only have a limited amount of time. I'm only here for a limited amount of time, and we have so much to accomplish. So, guys, we're going to be burning the midnight oil. Oh, and if we don't, oh, think of all that will be lost. Guys, it's all riding on you. <laughs> Is that what Jesus says? No. What does he say? Come away and rest a while. But why does he say that? I mean, don't they have more things to do? Isn't the time limited? Yes. But Jesus knows, and he displays here. What he knows and he displays here is his trust in both the sovereignty of God and the compassion of God. Our God is a sovereign, compassionate God. Our God is not a vicious taskmaster. And it's not, praise God, it's not all riding on us. Instead, he always has things in hand, and he always knows our weakness. Amen? He always knows our weakness. So he calls us to join him in the work that he is doing and to rely upon his strength. But sometimes relying on his strength means that we've got to take a step back. So Jesus calls his men to come away and rest a while. In the midst of grueling, the grueling demands of ministry, he calls them to rest. And he calls them to do that because he trusts in the sovereignty and the compassion of God. He trusts in the sovereignty and the compassion of God. And again, I want to be real transparent with you this morning. I already know that's going to be my struggle. I already know that's going to be my struggle. And what I mean is that I am going to be tempted to worry. My mom's over there going, yes, you will. I'm going to be tempted to worry while I'm away. I'm going to be tempted to think about what, what might not be getting done. Not, not because, I mean, the people that are going to be taking the load from me, it's great people. But I'm going to be tempted to worry about what might not be getting done. I'm going to be tempted to worry about what, what might happen while I'm away. Who, who might struggle and walk through difficulties. I won't be there to minister to. And I think that's part of why so many of us struggle to rest, right? We worry that things might just all fall apart if we do. Amen? We worry that one. And so even though we profess to believe in a sovereign God, we live like it's all riding on us. Or we live like God isn't compassionate 
Like he's just some cruel parent who doesn't care if we're tired. Like there's work to be done and you better get to it. But that's not what Jesus shows us here. Instead he shows us confidence in both the compassion and the sovereignty of God. He gives his disciples the gift of rest. He calls them to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. But what kind of retreat do these guys end up taking? Well, well, there's something that's implied in this text, but it's made explicit as their retreat unfolds. And, and that piece of information is that when the text says in verse 32, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves, the by themselves included who? Jesus. It included Jesus. See, these disciples went away to rest, but they went away to rest with Jesus. This wasn't just a a crashing or, or vegging type of rest. This was a rest that at the heart of it was time away with Jesus. Time away with Jesus. And that's made clear through what happens next. And this leads to the second thing that I want to point out this morning. A lesson and beautifully taught in the scene that follows here. Rest is not only given by Jesus, but our rest is to be found in Jesus. Our rest is to be found in Jesus. True rest is found in Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to experience. They've been out. They've been doing all this work of ministry. They've been proclaiming this message. They've been serving in his power. But now he wants them just to go away and enjoy some time with him. He wants them to know him better. And to find their rest and their refreshment in him. He wants them to find their rest, their refreshment in him. And I emphasize that because I know that's a struggle for some of you. And I know that's a struggle for some of you because I've I've talked to you in person about it. And, And here's what I mean. Some of you get so busy... So busy that, that even though you know you need to spend time with the Lord and be refreshed, you feel like there is no place for that in your life. I am so busy. You feel like you're so busy, like there, there's so many demands upon you, like you just couldn't step away and take that time. But you can. <laughs> and you need to. Now, I know, <laughs> I know that it's hard. I know that's hard. I know that's hard to be a Mary in a Martha world. Remember that story of those two sisters? Remember that story? It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 10. There we read that Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But the text continues. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And so she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I mean, all these people are in my house. You're in my house. Jesus, I'm trying to do all this stuff to make this right. And look at her. She's just sitting there. Don't you care? Tell her to help me. What does Jesus say? But the Lord answered her. Martha, Martha, well, listen to this. You are anxious and troubled about so many things. 
but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion. And some of you need to realize that you need to make that same choice. You need to make that same choice. You need to choose the good portion, the one thing that is necessary for your souls. And stop being anxious and troubled about so many other things. You need to choose the good portion and stop being anxious about so many other things. And that truth is illustrated so powerfully by what happens next in this text. As Jesus and the twelve, they, they leave on this retreat. Word starts spreading. That they're taken off. Mark tells us, look at the text, verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran from there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Now, now you need to understand the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, we call it Sea of Galilee, but it's really a lake. So these people are running along the shore, and somehow they're figuring out where Jesus and his disciples are going to land the boat. And then they take off and try to get there ahead of Jesus and the twelve. And Mark says here that people were coming from everywhere, from all the towns. Now, later down in this text, down in verse 44, we're told that the crowd that numbered, it, it actually numbered, the crowd that gathered actually numbered over 5,000. Mark says that there were 5,000 men. Matthew in his parallel tells us that there were also women and children. So we're talking about a massive crowd of thousands running to be with Jesus in the twelve. And many scholars believe that a good number of these folks were, were actually travelers. Uh, John, in his gospel, when, when he talks about this event, he tells us that it took place at the time of Passover. So there would have been a lot of folks that were traveling from all over the Roman world, and they were traveling down through Galilee on their way to Jerusalem. And so as word spread that Jesus and his disciples are getting ready to land the boat, this massive crowd, people that live in that area, people that are traveling through that area, this massive crowd of thousands, they gather there to meet And you think about the scene. It's funny the way things happen sometimes, isn't it? I mean, Jesus says, let's go away, right? Let's go away to a desolate place. And instead of just Jesus and the 12, a crowd of thousands decides to join them on their little retreat. How does Jesus respond to that? I mean, these folks, they could have been seen as a, as a big hindrance, right? Getting in the way of the disciples' rest. They could have been seen as a bunch of party crashers, ruining Jesus' planned ministry retreat. They could have been seen as those who are, you're getting in the way of my disciples' rest. But how does our Lord see them? Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had what? Compassion, pity, mercy upon them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Is that a good place for a sheep to be without a shepherd? No. But this is what these people are like. No shepherd. No one to lead them. No one to guide them. No one to care for them. No one to minister to them. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does he do? End of verse 34. And he began to what? Teach them many things. So Jesus pulls all these people that are like sheep without a shepherd. He pulls them into this ministerial retreat. <laughs> And it goes from 12 to thousands. And the lesson that he has for the 12 becomes a lesson for this massive crowd. And the lesson that he has, it's punctuated, it's driven home by what happens next in that desolate place. 
Look at the text, starting verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away. Send these thousands away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They're all starving. But he answered them, What? Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> you give them something. I, don't you love when Jesus does this kind of stuff? <laughs> you give them something to eat. And they, you know, looking to their own human resources and ability, they said, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii, which is about 200 days' salary? 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And, and the, the tone here is, even if we did that, that wouldn't be near enough. I mean, if we, if we had that, we, we still couldn't fix the situation. And he said to them, well, let's check your resources, right? <clears throat> How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, how many? Five and two fish. <laughs> five and two fish. Thousands. Five and two fish. So think about this. Here, here's this, all these people. This massive crowd, these, these weary 12 disciples. And they all have this need, right? It's an important need, right? It's a deep need. They need what? Food. <laughs> they need sustenance. They need to have this basic requirement for life met. And their provisions to meet that need are slim to none, right? Five loaves, two fish. It looks like this retreat is going to be a disaster. The planners among us would be freaking out, right? About We've got all these people out in the wilderness and all we got is five loaves and two fish. This is a disaster. We're trying to go away on this retreat, just have time with Jesus, and look what happens. It looks like this retreat is going to become an epic disaster. <laughs> but then the most amazing thing happens. Everybody there, from the 12 to this massive crowd of thousands, they all learn what it's like to go away with Jesus. They all learn what it's like to go away with Jesus. Verse 39. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. And I love that Mark throws that detail in there because it reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Here's the shepherd, right, leading us in green pastures. He commanded them to all sit down in groups of in groups on the green grass. So they all sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, <clears throat> he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. And then these amazing words, verse 42. And they all, what? Ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate by the thousands. They all ate of these five loaves and two fish. They all ate and they all, every single one, was satisfied. And it was all because Jesus was there. It was all because Jesus was there. there there's this powerful lesson being given in this story. And that is that Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is the one that we need. Jesus is the one who can and will provide for his own. I mean, and again, just think about this, this situation, this, this circumstance. It, it seemed ridiculous. A, a retreat for 12 people turned into a gathering for thousands, and, and there's not even close to enough for everybody to eat. And all they can find is five loaves and two fish, and they're out there in the wilderness in this desolate place, and it just looks like this epic disaster. 
But when Jesus is at the center, (laughs) when Jesus is at the center, look at what happens. Verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and of fish. How many baskets? One for every disciple, right? (laughs) 12 baskets full. Which means they had 12 baskets of leftovers. Which means they had had a feast out there. I mean, everybody had eaten and they couldn't eat anymore. And there were all these leftovers. They'd had a feast out in the wilderness. And it was all because Jesus was there. See, brothers and sisters, this is the reality of Jesus. This is the reality. He is the one in whom we must find our satisfaction. He is the one upon whom we must feed. And he is the one in whom we must find our rest. These disciples, they needed it. They were worn out. And so did this shepherdless crowd of pilgrims. They all needed rest. They were all worn out. They needed sustenance. And so Jesus took them all away out into this desolate place. And he taught them about himself. Taught them about himself. He taught them to look to him and find what they really need. Look to him and find what they really need. And that's what you can pray for me and for my family on this sabbatical. Pray that we will regularly find the rest that we need in Jesus. Pray that we will all, from me all the way down to Anna, drink deeply from the fountain of God's grace. That we will marvel at who our Savior is. That we will just be away with him holding him, feeding on him, being ministered to by him, and being reminded again and again how deeply he satisfies all those who come to him. Pray that our time away will be like a, a feast in the wilderness, just being away with Jesus, finding our rest, our satisfaction in him. Before I close, I want to make one more point from this text. And we've seen that That rest is a gift from Jesus and desires that for his followers. We just witnessed that Mark illustrates that true rest is found in Jesus. But I also want you to see here that rest is modeled for us by Jesus. Rest is modeled for us by Jesus. Look at what happens next in the text. Verse 45. Verse 45. Immediately, which is one of Mark's favorite words, (laughs) he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, what does he do? He went up on the mountain to pray. You see, even Jesus needed time away. Even Jesus. Here he is, think about this. Here he is, the perfect man, right? Without any sin. Fully God, truly human, perfect man, no sin. Yet he knows in his humanity, in his divinity, limitless power. In his humanity, he knows there are Limits. And this is a lesson that that we all need to heed. Again, Jesus is a perfect man. And, And if he, in his perfection, still needs rest, if he still needs time away, if he still needs to refresh his spirit and just be with his father, this is just an obvious question, but how much more do we Amen? If he does, how much more 
do we? Some of us have fallen into sinful arrogance. And what I mean by that is that we've, we've determined we're just going to push through. We're just going to push through. We're just going to keep going because we just have to. But not even Jesus Christ took that approach. He was humble enough to see that even he needed rest. So why don't we? Why don't we see it? Why don't we see it? I'll close. I just want to ask you a question, kind of transition here into some application for you. And what I want to ask you, I want you to think through this. Are you, not your spouse, not other people around you, um, but are you, are you finding real, tangible ways to rest? Are you finding real, tangible ways to rest? Are you finding ways to rest in Christ? Are you, are you learning to rest? Some of you, you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still struggling with this, right? Now, learning to rest begins with acknowledging our need for it. That's step number one. We have to humble ourselves and come to that point and realize we're finite beings and we can't do everything and we need rest. We have limited resources, limited abilities. So that's where it starts. But then from there, we need to then push away from our, our flawed approaches to rest, uh, making it an idol, making it a source of guilt or wasting time. When you push away from those things, and we need to instead find real healthy ways to feed our heart on Jesus, real tangible ways to feed our hearts on Jesus. And I'll just tell you, it's very simple. That begins first with being in his word. Amen? That begins with being in his word. We need to feed daily on the word of Christ, giving our souls the sustenance that they desperately need. But here's the thing. Sometimes we need to take those daily few moments and let them become a few hours or a full day or a weekend. We need to spend some extended time just being away with the Lord. And some of you, you've never done that. You might freak out that idea. But we need to. We need to set our, our Martha mentality aside in order to discover the delight of Mary. You understand what I mean by that? We need to, all those concerns about, we need to set that aside in order to discover the delight of Mary. That it is, it is wonderful to spend that kind of time with Jesus. And here's the thing. If you need help with that, if you need someone to carry the burdens for you for a stretch so you can step back and do that, take a day, take a couple of days, that's what the church family is for. Amen? Yeah, you're like, I'm not saying amen to that. Ryan will sign me up. No, seriously, that's what the church family is for. Don't try to be a lone ranger Christian. That's not the way God designed us to function. That's not the way the church is supposed to be. You have these precious brothers and sisters here who love you and who will help you. Oh, I want to spend some time with Jesus. Let me help you with that. They will love to help you to take the kids for a day or try to arrange something so you can go away. They love you and they want to help you in that. So take them up on it. Take them up on it. We need to do that. We need to have time just to be with Jesus. But with that, 
with pursuing time in God's word and feeding our hearts. We also need to learn to, to just delight in Jesus by enjoying the gifts that he gives. We need to learn to delight in Jesus by enjoying the gifts that he gives. What are the gifts that he gives? He gives the gift of marriage. He gives the gift of family. He gives the gift of friendship, the beauty of nature. And so we need, brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to step back and drink in those gifts that we've been given with a heart of thankfulness to the Lord Jesus. Here's the thing. Sometimes we are so busy with the next thing that we don't ever stop and enjoy where we're at. We don't ever stop and just delight in the gifts that Jesus gives to us. Or, or, or we delight in the gifts, but we forget who gave them. But brothers and sisters, it is so good for our hearts to take time to delight in both the gifts and the giver. It is really an exercise of our faith to enjoy Jesus by thanking him for the gifts that he gives. To just step back and delight in what Jesus has so graciously given. Some of you, you go, I have vacation days, but I've never taken them. Why? Why not go away, be with your wife, be with your family, enjoy nature, and just say, God, thank you for what you have given me. And just find your heart being refreshed. Amen? It's good to step back and delight in what Jesus has so graciously given to us. But most importantly, most importantly, brothers and sisters, We need to tangibly find rest by taking our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to tangibly find rest by taking our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the true soul-sustaining rest of Jesus is found. We find rest knowing that all the work is done and it's all ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. And I want you all to know that as I begin this sabbatical in May, I'm in a much better place than I was last fall. I'm in a better place than I was last fall. And I think a big reason for that has been our study in the book of Galatians. I think it's been because of our study in the book of Galatians. It has so encouraged me each and every week to be in that book. It is so, so just freeing and strengthening me to see the beauty week after week after week of the finished work of Christ. And that I can rest in the finished work work of Christ. It's been so satisfying to my heart and so uplifting for my spirit. So I praise God. I want to publicly praise God for the warning lights that went off this last fall. I praise God that that I saw them and uh, saw them before something truly awful happened. I praise God for the leadership here in the church and walking through this with me. I praise God for the health of this church. Uh, That is encouraging me as as I think about taking this time away. But most of all, brothers and sisters, I just praise God for the gift of rest. I praise God for what it teaches us about us and what it teaches us about him. I praise God that he calls us to rest and that the heart of that rest he calls us to is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in Jesus Christ. Our God calls us to rest And the heart of that rest is found in Jesus Christ. And we all come to know that and experience that in a deeper and more profound way. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I praise you for the fullness of the richness of your grace towards us. You are so kind, so generous. And honestly, in and of ourselves, we look at ourselves, all of us, we look at ourselves and we know we don't deserve any of it. We have no claim on these things that you give. We are rebels. We are sinners. But in your glorious, gracious plan, you saved us in Jesus Christ. You redeemed us through his blood. You have sealed us with the Holy Spirit. And you've brought us into the family. And in this family, things are so good. Such grace you give to us, Father. And I praise you for it. And I I pray that, that we would all see that and know that. I pray especially for those this morning who might be struggling with this idea of rest and they just feel like life is just too crazy. They just can't. And, and I praise you for what you're doing in their lives. I praise you that sometimes you, you let us go to that point where <clears throat> the wheels start to come off and we start to fall apart to remind us <laughs> we are not self-sufficient. We need you. We need you. And so I pray that, that my brothers and sisters who are, who are living in that way would see the... <laughs> the dangerous way they're heading would feel the pressure you're placing upon them and, and would learn to stop and just rest and come away for a while and just be with Jesus and feed their hearts and find the joy and the delight and the gifts that you give and savor the gospel and be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened and then be able to go forward in a, in a greater way, in a way that glorifies and honors you, a way that's not just hanging on by our fingernails, but a way that is proclaiming your greatness to the world as a people that have been given everything in Christ. And I praise you for this precious flock. I praise you for this precious church. I just ask your blessing upon them. I love these folks, and I just thank you so much for them in my life and for, for me being able to be in theirs. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the shepherd of this church. You are the pastor of this church. And so I thank you that you're watching over them. And you're watching over me. And you're caring for all of us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for continuing to lead us on. Green pastures, still waters. Even through the dark and difficult times, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are with us. And we won't be afraid. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. These things we pray in your name.